This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil reflect on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks and assess two decades of U.S. foreign policy that has emerged in response. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing all right. We're a few weeks in the semester now. You're probably just hitting peak semester form, right? You're, yeah. you're at your A game for teaching? A week and a half in. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> no, it's actually kind of... I, I, it's been kind of nice to be back in the class. I was sort of dreading it, but now that I'm, I'm back and students are there in person, it's, I remember the energy of the classroom and why I like doing what I do. It's been, uh, it's been, it, it's been nice, actually. You, you just forget, you know, all the, you know, I guess the last two years being away, you forget how enjoyable, even with masks on, that sort of personal interpersonal dynamic that plays out in the classroom. And I'm, I'm noticing it as well. I, I say my kids the same thing. They're talking about how, how much better it is to be back in person. And it's just, it's just better for learning. I, it makes me think about like hybrid learning and all that other stuff. Like there's value there, but it's hard to replace the, the, the unique experience you have of sitting with people in the same room. Having said all of that, I just had a conversation with a friend uh, who is like a public, you know, who does work with public health stuff. And they're convinced this is all short lived, like it's all going to come unraveled and we're going remote again in the not too distant future. So, oh, I don't don't like that. We'll see. I don't either. Uh, well, all right. Well, on that good note, why don't you re- tell everybody how they can stay connected with us? We've got some really, really, we're going to we're gonna have a really open-ended conversation about 9-11 today, and we've got some really good resources that you're putting up on the webpage. So our, our weekly readings. Yeah. So the politicslab.com is, is the webpage where you can find all of the episode pages, um, and each of the episodes have links to important, relevant, interesting uh, articles and or other things. So this week, I, we've got uh, several articles we're going to work through. One one big one that kind of summarizes a lot of the writing and research on September 11th over the last 20 years. Um, I have a link to that up there. Uh, last night, uh, Frontline on PBS had a had a almost two-hour documentary on 9-11 and the legacy of 9-11. I've put a link up to that. Um, so, uh, you know, several, I got an article from Foreign Affairs, one from Foreign Policy. It's, you know, in the, in the, in this, this week, as we come up on the 20th anniversary, there's a lot of writing about that. So we, we've put a few of those up. Uh, and then on, uh, Facebook at, uh, the Politics Lab and on Twitter at Politics Lab Pod, both of those places are our social media accounts where you can uh, follow us and keep up with what's going on. I think that's great. I think one of the things you and I were thinking about this week is that so often the reflection on 9-11 is just on those dates. And and we really wanted to kind of think about the broad 20 years since and have a more perspective look of where we've been and where we're going. So I think that's, that's, that's where we're heading. Should we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. So, okay, so as, as most of us know, this Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and while much of the attention will understandably focus on remembering the tragic events of that day, the moment also allows us for an opportunity to step back and take a bigger picture look at how those events have shaped U.S. foreign policy, foreign and domestic policy, over the last two decades, leaving a complicated legacy where in the effort to confront evil, the U.S. often became the very evil it was attempting to destroy. Uh, there was a fantastic piece, as Phil noted in the Washington Post this last week, by Carlos Lozada, reviewing the large literature to have emerged after 9-11. We thought it might be a good idea to start by reading a section, just a small quote of that, and then we'll move to a series of questions. So, quote, 
Reading or rereading a collection of such books today is like watching an old movie that feels more anguishing and frustrating than you remember. The anguish comes from knowing how the tale will unfold. The frustration from realizing this was hardly the only possible outcome. Whatever individual stories the 9-11 books tell, too many describe the repudiations of U.S. values, not by extremist outsiders, but by our own hand. The betrayal of America's professed principles was the friendly fire of the war on terror. In these works, indifference to the growing terrorist threat gives way to bloodlust and vengeance after the attacks. Official dissembling justifies wars, then prolongs them. In the name of counterterrorism, security is politicized, savagery legalized, and patriotism weaponized, unquote. Uh, Phil, when we take the entire 20-year period into account, a troubling pattern emerges. In fact, a number of those engaging in this big-picture review have argued that there's a direct line between the 9-11 attacks and the January 6th insurrection. I I find that it's hard to wrap my head around just how significant the 9-11 attacks have been for understanding U.S. and the international international system as a whole. So uh, where where should we start? How do we want to dive into this? Yeah, I mean, I I think this, you know... we spend so much time on this podcast talking about the current political environment we're in, the partisanship, the, you know, the, the sort of black and white, the hatred, the, you know, the, the populism, all of this stuff. And, and I think it is really interesting, um, to, to step back and think about how we got here. And I don't know that we often think of September 11th as the beginning of that. I don't know that it's the beginning of that route, but, but the, the, there's, you know, there's something here in this connection between this incredibly, you know, defining this definitive moment in America and history in September 11th and how we end up here. And so, I, I mean, I think let, let's, I, I, I like the idea. The article goes through all sorts of questions. And I, I think we should dig into some of those about the intelligence, about the <clears throat> stuff you talked about, the the uh, the justification of torture and all sorts of other stuff that, that gets tied up in September 11th. But maybe this big picture look at where we are and how we got here. And you know, I, as we, you and I were talking about this, um, I, you, we haven't talked, you and I, this is the first time you and I have directly talked about this, but we've kind of texted back and forth a little bit about it. And, you know, when you first kind of proposed this idea of, of this tie in between September 11th and where we are today, it was, I, I started jotting down some, just some thoughts on it. And it was amazing how quickly I, the parallels I, I could be seen. Like when I, when I think about the themes, like the themes of American politics today, and how they go back, like how similar they are to the, essentially the political mindset that comes out of September 11th. And I, you know, I just jotted some of this down, viewing the world in these black and white sort of good and evil terms, right? This idea of, you know, that was how we thought about the world after September 11th. That was how, you know, George Bush and the Bush administration politicians talked about it. And I see that playing out today in our domestic politics. It like kind of reframes how we think about the world. Um, this idea of a formless war, right? Like after, you know, the, after September 11th, this war on terror, the, you know, this, this war against people who are opposed to the American way of life, you know, people who are opposed to American values. And that same rhetoric has like, it seems like it is what it's infiltrated our domestic political discourse, right? When, you know, when people on the right are talking about people on the left, they talk about it in this war against American values, against the American way of life. And they talk about it in these black and white, good and evil sort of terms, this desire for retribution, right? Like punishment and getting the, you know, finding the people who are responsible for it. I see that playing out in our domestic politics. Um, you know, we'll talk in a little bit, I, I think, about the the way that 
you know, the Bush administration after September 11th um, and subsequent administrations as well viewed laws through the lens of like the technicality of laws. Here are the rules about torture or about whatever else, about the Geneva Conventions, all of this other stuff. And rather than thinking about them as the spirit of the law, what are they intended to do? What is, you know, what's the idea behind it? Instead, we're going to read them merely as technicalities and we're going to find any way around them. And I think about you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, right? Like that. When I think about like Supreme Court battles, when I think about how people approach politics today, it's the same thing, right? The idea of the reason for these laws, which is these bigger principle, this bigger principle of democracy or or whatever else, we've lost sight of that, and we've gotten like bogged down in the in finding these technical ways a, a, around it. Um, certain. I mean, none of that even touches on the anti-immigrant um, nativist sentiment that emerges. This what was originally, you know, anti-Muslim uh, backlash and you know hate crimes across the United States, but how that sort of reshaped American identity in terms of nativism. I mean, I think all there are all these themes, right? Like that I see still playing out. I, the biggest one maybe of all, though, and, and there have been a few articles that I've seen over the past few months that have kind of gotten at this a little bit, is that, you know, maybe more than anything else, it's it's this erosion of trust in government, right? Whether it was, you know, the, the, you know being told about the necessity of Afghanistan, about Iraq and the all the, you know, the uh, the the whatever lies, you know, um, misdirection about, um, Iraq and its necessity, uh, about the amount of money that has been spent for 20 years on these wars that could have gone into domestic programs. And so when I look at American politics today, where there is this frustration with government, the idea that the government can't be trusted, that like this economic situation I'm in, like all of that comes back around to populism and anti-elitism and anti-government. Like it, it just, I, I, like it, it, you know, I've thought about those things before, but when you suggested this idea, when I started actually putting out, it becomes it becomes really clear to me in ways that are really, uh, I mean, kind of amazing, but also, uh, you know, really frustrating, disappointing, terrifying. I mean, what, what's your, uh, is, is that what you think of? Are those the sorts of things that you think of, or are you thinking of it in a different way? No, no, I very much along those same lines, right? And, and and like you, it was I had started doing some reading on this and started to 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 see people making that connection between nine eleven and January sixth. And to be honest, I I hadn't thought about it in that way. And and maybe it was you know this is the first nine eleven anniversary after the January sixth attacks. It's also coming you know weeks after the United States has, has conducted the withdrawal and you know essentially lost in Afghanistan. So those things are on everybody's mind now. But it almost was like a light bulb going on. And, and the, like me, part of me felt like, you know, the, this sort of wild conspiracy theory where you've got a map of the world and all these crazy yarn strings. But but I think you're right. There's real value in, in seeing the, the causal relation and connection across them. Um, you know, I, I think for me, what's interesting when you see the coverage of 9-11, so you go back and obviously there are going to be lots and lots of shows about that day. And one thing that strikes you is the the clarity of good versus evil, right? It was just, I, I, I remember, I mean, you and I had conversations all the way back on 9-11 about how easy it was to say, we are good, they are evil. Um, and now those conversations are so, so complicated, right? I mean, I think, you know, the, the we, as you noted, uh, the evil is is no longer external. Now the evil is internal, right? We have, we've shifted from seeing enemies abroad to suddenly seeing those enemies within. Um, and, you know, I think Donald Trump had a lot to do 
do with that. He was very good at at picking up on the themes of native nativism and all of the lying that you talked about with the Iraq War and elsewhere, and kind of turning that to suddenly we we took that energy that that hatred, the vengeance of nine eleven, and over twenty years we've turned it on ourselves. And um, it's it's been it's been hard for me to kind of grapple with that because I think you're absolutely right. There are these are consistent themes that are playing out over time, and and we probably don't see January 6th if it wasn't for 9-11. We probably don't have Donald Trump as president if it wasn't for 9-11. Now, that's not to say it's the only causal factor, but it, it is a it is a really, really important. It, it explains part of what, what we're living through right now. It's really interesting to kind of think about, like, there you talk about how we don't get there without September 11th. And I think that's true, but in, in some ways, September 11th, and I think one of the themes that we'll talk about as we go through this, and, and that quote that you read to start it is, it didn't have to go this way. So some of it is September 11th, and some of it is the way we've chosen to respond to September 11th, right? And so that, you know, it could have been that September 11th happened and we responded in a different way that didn't get us to January 6th. But when you combine September 11th with this kind of, you know, reimagining of who we are, a reimagining of how we view the the world. I mean, again, all of this, I, you know, the, as, as we sit here and talk, I continue to think of other themes, right? The, we don't get to Donald Trump's like backlash against NATO. It sounds weird to say this because after September 11th, NATO was there for us. We invoked, uh, you know, that we invoked our rights under NATO and had NATO allies, you know, uh, support us in the war in Afghanistan. But the Bush, the Bush doctrine as a whole was one of we don't need the world, right? We're going to do this our way. Um, and if the world has a problem with it, you know, tough. And, and there's a line from that too. you know, Donald Trump's pushback against NATO, pushback against allies, the sort of stepping away from from international institutions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're I think you're exactly right. Like uh, the, the path forward could have looked different, but the way we went is what sets us on this road to, to where we are. I mean, conspiracy theories, right, that have become, I, you know, from the beginning, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about September 11th. And, and you know, we get to this point again where there are these, right, these these unknown forces out there that are out to get us or whatever. It, it, it all makes sense. And I think the power of all of this, you know, when you study political events and political identity, there, there's a power to these really specific defining traumatic events, right? They play like 9-11 is because of the role that we've given it, because of this like significance that we've given this event, it it is the defining moment. You know, we talk about foreign policy paradigms and in when we teach us foreign policy and how, you know, Pearl Harbor sort of reshaped how we yeah. view the world. And uh, September 11th clearly is one of those. And and part of the part of the thing is I like 20 years later, it's still I think that's the other aspect of it. There are a lot of things that we could have shifted our uh, the focus of our identity. We could, you know, be a country that identifies around some other key event of the last twenty years. But twenty years later, this is the event we still talk about. We still identify, and as long as we identify with September 11th as this kind of defining event, then some of those lessons we've talked about, the, the worldview that comes with it, the black and white and good versus evil and all that, it's going to continue to define our politics. I, it's, I a, it's, it's frustrating, but I, it's hard to find a path forward at the same time. Go ahead. I, I, you know, I think you're right. And I think it's, it's an important, you're right, important clarification point to say it wasn't 9-11 itself. It was the U.S. reaction to that. Uh, because I think this is this is a moment when they're, the 20-year 20, 20 anniversary allows us to have a proper accounting not of 9-11 itself, but of the U.S. response. And and I think by any measure, 
you would argue that the U.S. response, the U.S. war on terror has left us worse, right? You know, we are, we're more afraid, we're more alone in the world, we're more nativistic, um, you know, we're more morally compromised, all of those things because of the way that the United States conducted this quote-unquote war on terror. And I, I think it's it's uncomfortable to do, it's hard to do, um, and it runs across multiple different presidential administrations from Bush all the way in some ways, to, to Biden, right? He's, he's, he's left himself in there. I mean, he's included in that as well. But yeah, I, I can't think of, you and I were talking about, you know, the, whether we should have the intro say the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you commented, what is the good? And I said, well, we, Bin Laden was killed. But other than that one moment, it's hard to look back and to say that, that any of the policies the United States pursued, whether it's the drone policies, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, um, you know, the response to ISIS, any of those are, are successes, and that's not even getting at the surveillance. I mean, all the surveillance yes. stuff, the surveillance state, the size of, of that aspect. I mean, there's like all sorts of ways in which we've given up freedom in other ways as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, you're you're right. Like, uh, you know, as you list those things, none of those have been uh, what you would call a success. Right. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like this is this is a better world that we live in, having fought Afghanistan, had wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and carried out, you know, extensive uh, creating an extensive surveillance state and, you know, waiting in line at the airport still today f- to go through security. And I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's depressing. <laughs> and, and those things, as we were discussing earlier, have drifted into domestic politics, right? I mean, maybe the biggest factor of them all is that, again, we have turned our external enemies into internal ones where we are now divided. And, and there's this, you know, a number of people have posed this question, you know, did bin Laden win, right? You know, bin Laden had a clear plan. His intent was to, to draw the United States into a long, drawn out conflict. Um, I, I don't know if he won, uh, but certainly I think he would have felt, he would have appreciated the way in which the United States executed the war on terror, right? That, that it made them, it made the United States less strong, less morally sound. All of those things would have, would have, he would have gladly embraced if as a, as an outcome. Yeah. One of the articles that I put up that you and I were, you know, that we shared back and forth this week talked about how the goal of bin Laden, he, he thought that the U S would sort of crumble in response to September 11th, which is absolutely not what happened. Uh, but in some ways, the response that we did kind of, you know, over overreacting and in, in the, the change in our in our political systems and our political beliefs uh, might have been, you know, e- even better for for his goals than than what we than what we did. Um, oh, how much of this do you think I, as, as we talk about it, you talk about all you know where we are today politically? I mean, one of the one one sort of theme that you could see running through that is fear, right? Like after September 11th, right, people were rightfully terrified, right? I mean, you and I were in grad school together. Like we lived in Denver halfway across the country, but still, I mean, it felt like, you know, it was, it was such a shock to how people thought the world worked, um, that, you know, people really did feel afraid. Um, but certainly that fear was also used, right. And, and, and like used to justify uh, part of the, you know, the rhetoric out of politicians afterwards was essentially you should be afraid, right? Like we need to go fight these wars to defend because otherwise, you know, how can you possibly have safety and security at home? And I, and again, that idea that like destroying that sense of safety and security, again, as I look through the thread to where we are today and whether we're talking about, you know, guns or the battle for political power or, you know, whether you in the streets, you know, Black Lives Matter, January 6th, it seems like fear is like is a part of that, right? This idea of whether it's justified or not, it has become kind of the primary motivating factor for so much of our politics. 
Oh, almost definitely. And I think there's parallels to the Cold War here, right? So, you know, coming out of 9-11, the country was trying to find who that enemy was going to be, and it became terrorism, right? It became Al-Qaeda, but but it wasn't just Al-Qaeda, right? It was this broader war on terror, which meant that, you know, Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, right? So it was this, you know, this broad sense of who's good, who's evil, the terrorists are evil, and, and we're going to let that drive us. And yeah, I mean, it, I think it also fits with the Red Scare, where we turned internally uh, on our own, on ourselves, right? This, this sense of fear. And, and I don't think, you know, we, we put a lot of blame on Donald Trump for this, but, but it's a really interesting question of whether, you know, was Donald Trump unique or, or was he simply a byproduct of a system that was already feeding off of fear? You know, was, there was this underground sense of nativism and fear of others and fear of outsiders and fear of immigrants, fear of Muslims, right? Islamophobia. Uh, it was, was, was it that Donald Trump broke us or was, were we broken and Donald Trump stepped into that and seized upon that, that insecurity and sense of fear? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like we're, the 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 conversation we've been having for the last twenty minutes or whatever is is a pretty strong argument for the fact that this is you know it, that's not to say that he wasn't an accelerant, right? That that he right. didn't like make things in some way you know worse. But yeah, I mean, it's a strong argument for all of the seeds were there, right? The roots of this issue were there and and had been planted long before Donald Trump ever came along. So yeah, to go back to the idea of can there be a Donald Trump without September eleventh? I mean. Yeah, it, in some ways, I, I, you know, it, it's not that hard to convince me that that no, like that that's that the world looks very different, uh, or the United States at least looks very different, um, uh, you know, it, without without September 11th shaping things. And the other thing to remember, and this is hard because we have to go back 20 years, but what a squandered opportunity it really was. In those days after 9-11, um, it wasn't just the United States. It, it was the world as a whole was connected with the United States. I mean, we had so much uh, capital, so much human capital, so much you know goodwill out there uh, where they were willing to support the United States. I mean, the only time NATO has exercised Article 5 was in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, right? Supporting the United States. So we had diplomatic support, but it wasn't just limited to our NATO allies. It was around the world. Um, and again, I think that's maybe the greatest tragedy here is that the United States had a unique opportunity to remake the world and make the world a better place. And and the misguided adventure that, you know, all of these presidents have have taken on us has left the United States less, less safe, less secure. Um, yeah, that, that, that really, that, the idea of a squandered opportunity sticks with me. Yeah. Well, should we, I mean, should we dig into some of those, yeah, like, you know, some of those back, background issues about like how the opportunities were squandered and what, you know, what, you know, with 20 years of hindsight, how do we, you know, how do we reinterpret or how do we view things now? Let's do it. Um, I mean, one of the, the article, you know, the article begins talking about like the, you know, if we go back in time pre September 11th, right. I mean, we can begin with the, with the question of, you know, the, the, Again, this is the Washington Post article I'm citing. It goes through all of this research and writing on on September 11th. It begins by talking about uh, the the fact that um, that there were warnings, right? That that there was that are or there was enough information that maybe the U.S. should have seen it coming, right? That there were lots of people in the intelligence community that were warning about the intentions of of, of Al Qaeda of um, Bin Laden, um, and it seemed to fall on either intentionally or accidentally deaf ears, right? It just wasn't, it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't heated. And so, I mean, I, we can start that with that. Um, you know, and part of it is, is, I think, some to some extent, human nature. I mean, one of the quotes from the, from the article, uh, you know, America seems only to respond well to disasters, to be undistracted by warnings. Um, the problem with responding only to calamity is that underestimation is usually replaced by overreaction. And we tell ourselves it's the right thing and maybe the only thing to do. So there were warnings, but, you know, we react, you know, this idea that America does doesn't really react to warnings. We only react to calamity, right? <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So, I mean, uh, when we look back to the, the the lead up to September 11th, I mean, what what do you see in this? What do you what are your takeaways? What do you think we've learned in this process? I don't know if we've learned anything. That's a really good question. Let me hold off on that for a second. But okay. yeah, you know, you look back through and, and you know, there's been, you know, the 9-11 Commission, all of them look through. And I think there was something like 36 references in the presidential daily briefing about Al-Qaeda, what was going on. Now, I don't blame George Bush for, for not anticipating the specific nature of the attack. But I think it does speak to the, the degree to which the United States is always fighting the previous war. Um, you know, we were we just come out of the Cold War not long ago. Uh, the world felt safe like we weren't even we weren't able to imagine what the next threat would be and and even when it was staring us in the face to some degree right it was it was there uh, we, we we should have known that terrorism was going to be this next thing it, it was hard for the system to respond uh, as I was as I was reading that and you were talking about that I couldn't help but think about the climate change issues right now mm, you know yeah. we we know we know climate is the national security challenge of the 21st century it's there we're seeing it every day and yet we don't respond right I think I think it's America in general has difficulty responding to threats that are in front of their face until it gets to that point of calamity. And and so, yeah, it's not surprising that the United States missed this. Um, I don't necessarily hold George Bush accountable for that, right? I think that's, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, I do hold him accountable for what came afterwards. What do you think? I mean, should we, should we have seen this coming? Is this a, is this an intelligence failure or how do, how should we understand this? I mean, I think I think the answer is is yes. I, I think in some ways it's almost the wrong question because the question of did, you know should we have seen it coming? We did see it coming, right? I mean, that's what the evidence says, right? There was all sorts of intelligence that said we knew this was coming, or we knew that there was the threat of this. Uh, you know, Al Qaeda had carried out increasingly, uh, you know, sort of bold attacks on the U.S. leading up to this, and so you know we did see it coming. The question is, in some ways, why did we not heed the warnings, right? So so we we did see this. I thought that stat was uh, fascinating because, you know, oftentimes it's cited that the president was warned, but the, you know, the article points out that there were, it's not once, it was countless warnings. There were people through, or not countless, a lot of warnings and people throughout the bureaucracy that were trying to get people to pay attention to, to Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and, and they didn't. And, you know, I, I think about, well, how does that, how does that play out? I mean, I, political science can, can, you know, tell us some of this stuff, right? I, I mean, foreign policy is a human endeavor and people are deeply flawed, right? Humans are, are flawed in, in lots of different ways. But, you know, one of the things I talk about in my class is that we we overestimate our odds of success. And I think this plays into into like the discussion on, on the Iraq war. Like we're always optimistic about our outcomes, right? Things are, we don't sit around most of the time thinking that things are going to be terrible. Um, and, and so I think, you know, this is a, this is an example of that in that, uh, you know, the, the, incons the, the sort of, you know, the extraordinary is inconceivable, right? To, to imagine that this would happen. I, I think even though there were warnings, it was just, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around. It's the same thing with climate change, right? There's all, like you mentioned, there's all sorts of warnings, but the idea of nations, an island nations going underwater or like the shorelines receding or whatever is like 
so hard to, it's like so severe as to like, you know, it can't pot. It's, it's too easy to dismiss that. Um, uh, and so I, you know, I think, yeah, there's something to be learned there about taking warnings seriously, even when they're not, you know, when, when you don't want them to be serious, when it's hard to wrap your head around, because that's, you know, it's by the time it's too late, it's too late. I, I also wonder about that, you know, some of that is human nature, but some of it is American nature. I mean, when you, people talk about, you know, allies even sort of joke about the, the sort of American, the naive optimism right, of America, the idea of America that sort of, sort of views itself as, I, I don't know, like it can achieve anything and everything, this sort of sunny disposition. And I think there's some truth to that. Like the idea that the United States, you know, the idea that something bad could happen to the United States just seemed sort of inconceivable. And I think that is it is human, but it is an especially an American form of like worldview. Uh, and, you know, after Vietnam and all sorts of other stuff, you would think that that had been shaken a little bit. But, um, I, you know, it, it 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 clearly wasn't. I mean, even moving forward, as we start talking about Iraq and Afghanistan, I think that sort of naive optimism remains like a defining feature of this couldn't possibly have happened. And our response will obviously be successful because we're on, we're on the side of right. We're exceptional. We're America. And even thinking about the different, you know, the time frame was like 17 minutes between the first plane striking the, the World Trade Center and then the second one. Uh, they talked about the the reality that people couldn't even wrap their head around that this was a terrorist attack. It had to be an accident of some sort. Some, some, so yeah, we are we are optimistic that it can't we aren't can't be dangerous. You know, we're not in harm's way until we really are in harm's way, and then we overreact. And I think that's that's you know we did that during the Cold War in the early stages of the Cold War. Uh, there was the Soviet threat, which isn't to not deny that, but the United States accelerates that in terms of its response. And we saw that here. It wasn't the Nate, it wasn't that we respond, it was how we responded that got the United States into trouble. So yeah, I, I find the climate climate's a different different threat, right? It's hard to demonize climate, but I think in many ways that the inability to see the danger coming and it's it's certainly come in our direction. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog barking in the background. I think the mail <laughs> is getting delivered. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, you're 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 right, and and what, one of the things that's fascinating to me, like you talked about the reaction and whatnot, we've talked about that with the first topic, right? How that sort of sets the the course. It, it feels like in the in the media and that discussion as we go through, I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, on Saturday with all the you know the remembrances and the, and whatnot in the news media, how they cover it, um, but. Yeah, a lot of it focuses on the the day of the tragedy, but the the analysis that does occur so often focuses on that how did it happen, right? How so how did this happen? Understanding, you know, why I remember all the articles about why they why do they hate us and what's the, you know, right. background and and I think that that's an important question. But it's a question that's been looked at. And in many ways, I think the more important question with 20 years of hindsight is the question of our response, right? That's what we should really be in some ways more concerned with is, is, is you know, it, 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 we certainly don't want this to happen again, but, but it, it feels like there's too little attention paid to sort of what came afterwards. Like, how did we respond? Why did we respond that way? How can we do better um, in the in the future? Maybe that's a good transition to the lawyer question. Should we transition yeah. to talk about the legal response? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah, because this is another one that well, the article does a really nice job with thinking about how the United States respond, and especially the Bush administration. Um, the article talk about you know when Bush, as soon as nine eleven happens, he he said there would be no yielding, no equivocation. Um, he, he didn't want this to be. We didn't want to lawyer this thing to death, right? The idea was don't let the lawyers get in the way. But the reality was, as they point out in this article, is that instead of disregarding the law, the Bush administration enlisted it. Uh, Cheney saw to it that some of the sharpest and best trained lawyers in the country. Were 
working in secret in the White House and the U.S. Department of Justice, came up with legal justifications for the vast expansion of government power, right? So, so the idea was that it wasn't that we got the lawyers out of the way. As you mentioned earlier, we brought the lawyers in and we said, here's existing international law. Here's existing domestic law. Find ways around that so we can wage this war on terror the way we want, right? It was, it was not an, it wasn't that we were indifferent to law. We ex- ex- accepted that law was there, but these high-powered lawyers were were paid and in, in charged with finding ways around that. Um, and it's hard to even say that without thinking about Donald Trump and where we are in terms of the legal debate right now. Um, but is that is that one of the big legacies of, of the post-9-11 world, the implication of law and law lawlessness and, and lawyers leading the way? I think so. I mean, of all the stuff that that article goes through, and as I think about the legacy of, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be troubled by, but in some ways, this is this is maybe the most shameful or one of the most shameful, and, and it's the law aspect, but it's, you know, it's the use of, I, I don't, it feels like this, and again, I, I don't want to be naive about the history of America, and I know that America has long used law for for crappy purposes or whatever, but at least the, I don't know, the, the rhetoric and the, the, the approach in, in some way was about, you know, the, the, the purpose of the law was to serve these larger values, right? That, I mean, that if we, the way we talk about the founding of America and the creation of institutions and law in the United States was that there are these overarching principles, you know, enshrined in the constitution and our founding documents, these, you know, fundamental human rights and political and civil rights that exist. And, and that is, you know, everything is to serve that purpose, right? These higher values. And, and this is an example of the ways in which, you know, in that moment, um, that all gave way to the desire for power and security and, you know, we're going to achieve a goal. And so the, the, the values that these laws are intended to serve become secondary, right? Like, so yes, there's a law against torture. There's an international convention against torture. There are domestic laws against torture, but in this moment, right, we got to get that, you know, we got to get that asshole. And so, you know, clearly they weren't meant for this purpose, right? Like torture wasn't, it was, was banned, but they didn't think this through, right? And it's, it's a, it's a human response that you see oftentimes, right? Like this is different, right? This is exceptional, but it became so overabiding that it, you know, that, that becomes the dominant sort of approach and and to watch government lawyers who are, you know, again, supposed to be serving this larger purpose, actually trying to find ways to, you know, get around the law, um, losing sight of these, you know, fundamental values, right? The, The fundamental values, they're supposed to be fundamental because they exist even when they're inconvenient, right? And, and we, in this moment, we decided they're inconvenient and we're going to be done with those values. And that's, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's when I talk earlier about like U.S. response sort of playing into bin Laden's hand. That's where this is. You know, I, I thought I thought as I was reading that article and thinking through this I, again, I, you know, I've, I continue to reference that interview we did with Jim Waller. But I, in that interview with Jim Waller, where we're talking about violence and whatnot, and he, he talks about how people repeatedly say this isn't who we are. And he says, but this this is this is who we are. And I think this is the mo- like this is the point where you look at how we responded to crisis and the only way you can come to terms with it, the only way that you can actually fix this is if you come to terms with the idea that this is who we are. When it's inconvenient, the values and principles that we say are overarching will, you know, will push those aside. And that again, that through line to where we are today, right? Like it feels like we as a country have lost sight of these 
the values that that you know what what central to democracy central to like what it means to be a citizen all these ideas that that seem so important to the american experiment have been pushed aside in the name of power and security right the same sort of idea and so yeah i mean i you know i you and i teach this you we you know in my old i don't do it as much now but international law class i used to talk about this ethics of war we used to dig deep in this this the the stuff that we justified in the name of, you know, winning the war on terror, um, you know, again, like it's it it should be appalling, right? The, like it, the the whole point of winning the war on terror was about, you know, the values of freedom and human rights that we were standing up for, and and to to abandon those in so many ways in order to defend human rights is it's 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 really it's shameful. It's really it's it's really disturbing. And you can point to specific examples, right? I mean, the, I think the torture regime is 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 probably the most prominent one, right? Where the United States said, uh, you know, it's we had clear international and domestic law preventing that. And, and as you know, there's a reason for that, right? The U.S. government, the U.S. public said that torture is wrong under all circumstances, right? There was no qualifier in that. Um, but they found ways around that, right? They said, well, torture had to be of a certain duration, and it had to feel like organ failure. And if you did something that fell short of that, it didn't call, count. The, the name of the torture statute is like a uh, law against torture and cruel and inhumane and degrading treatment. Well, they said, no, no, no. The, even though the, the law is named that, it only deals with torture, not the other things. So they kept finding ways around it. And it speaks to, as you said, who you are, right? The United States, its its value isn't just its power, it's also its moral leadership. And when you find yourself engaging in that conduct, um, it hurts you abroad. Same thing with uh, the Abu Ghraib, right? The prison in, in Iraq where, where torture took place and the videos and the pictures were released. Guantanamo Bay is another instance that is is still with us today. Uh, you know, we haven't been able to shut down Guantanamo Bay. Multiple presidents have tried, or I should say Obama tried. Uh, Trump did not try. Um, and now we're in a situation where there, we still have not gotten through the pre-trial uh, stage of of uh, you know the 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 initial individuals involved in the nine eleven attacks, right? I mean, it's it's such it's so separate from from what we would consider law and order. Um, and by doing that, right, you you undermine the law. And I think I think it sets the stage for Donald Trump's use of the law, right? So we saw. Bush and others, and Obama as well. I think we could talk about Obama and drone strikes, right? They found ways to skirt the law. And it sets the stage for somebody like Trump to come in and say the law is relative, right? Um, I do things when they're in my interest and I ignore the law when it's not in my interest. So we see this slippery slope take place. And um, yeah, it really is. It, it, it speaks to the to the danger of, of overreacting to, 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 to attacks. And, and the domestic surveillance stuff as well, right? The yes, whole idea of like yes. giving way of pushing aside your values because of of, you know, fear and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, that, that's a classic example. Right. And, and I think, you know, libertarians and others have been civil libertarians have been like pushing back against that for a long time. And I think they have been right to do so. And I, and I think this is where also like, you know, one of my favorite like things that when we when I talk about you know who's to blame for various things is is this concept in in ethics and whatnot which is that that blame can be distributed without being divided right so that mm-hmm. you can multiple people can be guilty right and you don't have to say you know the fact that George Bush is guilty means that other people are less guilty and and I think there's a lot of blame to be distributed during this time and I think we're right to point at the Bush administration the Bush lawyers and all of that but it's also important and back to this idea of this is who we are to recognize that every one of those things that you just went through, whether it was, you know, the war in Iraq, whether it was, you know, uh, enhanced interrogation, whether it was 
you know, the 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 boom in this in the surveillance state, every one of those had some level of congressional support. They had widespread public support. I mean, this was, you know, people were on board with this early on. And that, I think, speaks to the power Again, of fear, right? This idea of, uh, you know, fear and, and, you know, hatred and like this vindictiveness that ran through things. And, and that's, you know, that's the humanity of it. That's like recognizing that this is like, you know, as, as a mass, a country, it's not that a few people just happened to lead us astray. As a country, we were prepared, you know, in the aftermath of this to say, you know, these values that we say we care about, we, we still care about them. But, um, right now we care even more about, you know, uh, again, about retribution or or whatever. And even thinking about Obama, who campaigned against the Iraq war, campaigned against torture, said he wanted to reinstate law. He's a constitutional lawyer. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, this was somebody who believed in the law. He gets into office and he does. He outlaws torture, says we're not doing that anymore. But then the CIA comes to him and says, you know, we really think that the use of drones um, is important for our security. And to go back to your point about fear, I think Obama is afraid at that moment, Mm. right? He doesn't want to be George Bush, where there's another attack that is carried out in the United States because he didn't use these extrajudicial, extra legal means. And right, so so he won't go to torture. He says that's wrong. Uh, but he, he he continues and accelerates the use of drones. He d- doesn't close uh, Guantanamo. And, and some of some of that was, you know, his hands were tied by Congress, but but some of it was fear that he didn't want to be a president who didn't do everything, right? So this 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 permeates administration after administration. It really is, it's pernicious in terms of how powerful it is on, on these these decision makers yeah uh yeah i mean I, and I, I don't know i'm sure there's research on that i don't know how you break that cycle right how, because it feels like we still live in that in some ways like you internalize it right like we've all gotten used to security checks at airports and and i imagine that if we were to totally do away with them a lot of people would be relieved but also people would feel anxious right that that level yes. of anxiety and and this idea that you know, that, that we live in, uh, well, we talked about this with, with, uh, Biden withdrawing from Afghanistan over the last couple of weeks. There's a chance that he could be wrong, that Afghanistan could go in the wrong direction and he will pay a cost for that. But there has to be some, you know, weighing of like the risks versus, you know, what, what are you willing to sacrifice to do away with risk and sacrificing it? Does it actually eliminate the risk? And this is one of those where like, I think a lot of the, the the stuff that we gave up after September 11th to reduce risk, if anything, didn't reduce our risk. It might have increased our risk because of all of the stuff we've talked about, because of, you know, the 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 decline in American power, the you know, the fact that we, you know, that our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and other these places made us, you know, international targets for other groups like that. You know, it's it, that short term reaction is is you know so problematic in 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 creating uh, anyway and, and oftentimes worsening the situation bringing about the very thing that you fear well as you noted earlier this you know the, the the war on terror didn't have to be executed in this particular way it was entirely possible to use the law to frame your response to 911 uh George W Bush on the first day was talking about this was an act of war uh that the United States was going to respond that we were suddenly in a war Th- there was an entirely different narrative which could have been this was a crime and the United States and that is how we have fought terrorism in the past right it was criminal activity and we are going to go out and get those individuals who engaged 
engaged in that crime. If you call it a crime, it means you're going after individuals. If you call it a war, you're invading states, you're toppling regimes. And again, that semantic choice, that that decision to say we were attacked, that this is a war, leads to all sorts of consequences. I, I wonder, had he pursued the criminal justice, had he used law to say we're going to go after these individuals, it might have left led to a very, very different outcome. And it, we may have avoided the torture, the Gitmo, the Abu Ghraib, all of those things wouldn't have been necessary if you're not invading countries, taking over territory. You're just going after individuals who engaged in a heinous crime. So I, I you know, I think that's also one of the big legacies of this is that there were other ways to to prosecute this war. Yeah, and it wasn't just a frame. It wasn't just that it was framed as a war. It was framed as a war against this amorphous concept, right? Which is this, you know, mushy, blobby thing of terrorism. Which is again, like you know, even if it when it's when it's a crime, then it's Osama bin Laden and the people around him who were pursuing. When it's a war on terror, then it is the world is a scary place, right? In which there's, you know, it's not just one person. It's like a, you know, there's there's you know people in the shadows uh, out to get us, and and you know, there's some truth to that, right? But it, it when you when it's ill-defined, there's not a limit to it, right? It becomes sort of this, this and that's where the analogy to the Cold War, um, right? With this, it's one thing to say we're fighting a war against the North Vietnamese government. Uh, to fight a war on communism, right? It's this amorphous thing. You never know who it is. They're everywhere. They're around us. They're out to get our way of life. And and that's that's a uh, it's a it's hard for the human brain to cope with that. Definitely. Well, you want to talk about Iraq and Afghanistan a little? Let's bit? do it. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I this is I, I think that's you know this is. I don't know that it's the turning point, right? This is what people think of when they think of the the response to to uh, to nine eleven. Should we should we should we talk Afghanistan since that was the first one, or should we talk Iraq since Iraq was kind of the the error that that it seems like the maybe the bigger mistake and maybe it wasn't the bigger mistake. It was just a different type of mistake. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk Iraq because we've spent some time right. the last couple of weeks kicking around Afghanistan. I think it might be useful, fun to to engage Iraq. Yeah, how do you so, how do you want to go about this? Well, you know, I think for me, as you think back on the Iraq war, and again, making the connections to what we see today, how easy it was for the administration, the Bush administration at that time, to manipulate the public. I I can't help but remember all of the arguments that were made connecting Saddam Hussein to 9-11. They were disingenuous. We knew, so, you know, Al-Qaeda is a, is a terrorist organization that attacked the United States. Uh, Saddam Hussein was the leader of Iraq, and there was no real connection between the two. But the administration spent a lot of time trying to forge that connection, and then making the argument that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, had WMD, that he had chemical, he had biological, and he was pursuing nuclear weapons. And then again, what we see at the end of that war is once the United States gets in, Saddam didn't have WMD. There really was no connection. There was never a connection to Al-Qaeda. He wasn't involved in the 9-11 attacks. But what that administration did at the time was was made the American public think that. Um, and I think Dick Cheney bears a um, extra responsibility, but all of them were involved. I mean, you could almost look at the speeches and they're all similar whether it was George W. Bush or Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld or Condoleezza Rice, they were all making this argument that in this new era where we need to be afraid and we need to be worried about things, Saddam is next on that list. And there were a lot of liberals who who believed in this, right? That absolutely it's time to deal with Saddam. But but looking back, you see the danger and how easy it is to manipulate, manipulate the public. And 
and, and, and how dangerous that was in terms of the long-term destabilization of the Middle East, right? I, I think that's, to me, it's, it's, it's criminal the way in which that administration argued or ju- tried to justify that war. I, I, I still struggle with that. And that was, you know, you and I were in grad school, like we were in the midst of that when, when that was all playing out. And I, I remember at the time it felt disingenuous and it still does today. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, there already have been, you know, a ton of case studies and, you know, lots of writing on this, but it feels like this is going to be something that people are going to study for, you know, for decades, right? And 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 rightfully so. And, and because there's so, so many elements to it, like, like you talked about, you know, the, 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 the deception of it, the, the ability to, to sort of convince people that, uh, well, how easy it was to convince people. I, I mean, I see all sorts of elements. So when I think about it, I, I kind of think about it on two different levels. I think about it from within the Bush administration. Like, you know, if I'm teaching a foreign policy class and I'm thinking about foreign policy decision making and how do you explain this, right? Like the, the war is Afghanistan. That's where Osama bin Laden is. That's what we've, you know, we have international support. How in the world do you get the shift towards Iraq in the aftermath of this. And and there's all sorts of elements to this, right? There's all sorts of theories that kind of point to or help, you know, help clarify this. Um, You know, uh, the, the, there's, you know, when you look at like political psychology stuff, there, there's stuff about how, you know, it's natural for humans to like folk, for people to focus on the thing that we're familiar with. And there's all sorts of evidence yeah. that we didn't understand Afghanistan. We didn't, you know, just the quotes in that article from Rumsfeld and others who like, you know, Rumsfeld, like, Years into the war in Afghanistan, it's like, I still don't really have a good picture of who the enemy is, right? Right, Iraq was familiar, right? We had fought Iraq. We had defeated Iraq. We knew Iraq. It was like this, you know, this this historical, like this, you know, proud moment in which we led this international coalition. I think, you know, we literally went back and sort of dusted off the plans from the last invasion. So I, I think part of human psychology is that there's this thing that is unknown and hard and then there's Iraq, right? Which is like, it feels familiar. We know how to do it. And, and I think there's the pull of that. I, the idea that I mentioned earlier, which is that we tend to, you know, within, again, political psychology, we overestimate as as people, we overestimate our odds of success almost always. The endeavor that we set out to, we, you know, when we set out to do something, we tend to believe we're going to be successful or at least we're more optimistic about our odds of success than we actually are. And that, I mean, a hundred percent in Iraq, right? From the beginning, you know, the, the, whether it's the mission accomplished stuff, whether it's, we're going to be greeted as liberators, all of that, like there was so much overconfidence in what we were going to be doing there. Um, and so the odds, again, the idea that this was going to go badly, I, I think just didn't cross people's minds. The, the the mirror imaging, right? The idea the the article mentions, you know, this quote: "The president assumed the worst about what Saddam Hussein had done or might do, yet embraced base, best case scenarios of how an American uh, invasion would proceed." Again, we're the good guys. We're going to be hailed as liberators. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein is the bad guy. Um, he's the evil one, right? And every, you know, there's there it was all black and white, all good and evil. And so you know, that's how we end up down this road. A bureaucracy, the way bureaucracy is structured, our our military was structured and designed to win wars. It was not structured and designed to build nations. And so it's unfair to put that on our military, on our troops, you know, afterwards. So all of these like very concrete ways that you can see how it goes wrong, that doesn't even get at like, you know, the individuals and their willingness to be sort of deceptive or, or whatever. Um, but I, I do think about the long term, you know, uh, the long term effects of September 11th that we talked about earlier and how that gets us to, to January 6th. And I think, 
Iraq plays a massive part in that, right? Whether it's the deception, the belief that government can't be trusted, whether it's money in politics and the idea that, you know, military contractors were making tons of money. Dick Cheney had all of his, you know, Halliburton stock options still while he was vice president, (laughs) all of these contracts given to Halliburton, the, you know, the statement about keeping Iraqi oil, all of that stuff. I mean, the the lack of accountability, right, that all of you talked about so much of this was criminal and nothing, nothing was done about it, whether it was the torture, whether it was the Iraq invasion, all of that. And and the broad strokes with which we painted, you know, like in this case, the idea that Saddam Hussein would be in cahoots with Osama bin Laden, if you like – if you knew anything about Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and what they stood for, they were there was no like no way that they were going. And it didn't take that much nuance to understand that. But all of the, you know this I, this willingness to sort of paint the Muslim world with one you know big brush brushstroke, all of that kind of contributes again to these these simplistic you know, uh, you know populist uh, you know anti government attitudes that that have taken root in America. So I mean. There's that's that's this laundry list of all of these elements that are wrong with us. It's like hard to even kind of, you know, pick where, you know, which part of this is most important because it's this confluence of so many, you know, human, uh, I don't know, failures. You know, for me, it really a lot of it. Why part of the reason Bush was so successful is because they continue to run with this narrative of good versus evil. Yeah. And I, I do think George W. Bush really sees the world in black and white. He sees, you know, the good, and he sees, you know, evil doers. And and the way they framed this was that you know the United States is 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 good. We're the ones uh, that are, are preserving the world and protecting the world. And the terrorists are evil. And oh, by the way, Saddam is a bad guy. And Saddam is or was a bad guy, right? Absolutely. But there was an yeah, inability to separate that, to say, you know, we were attacked by terrorism, terrorism is evil, Saddam is evil, well, we should therefore topple him. Um, and you're right, they went back to this old idea that, that was, you know, the neoconservatives going back to the first Bush administration, that how you solve problems is you you end states, right? So the neoconservatives said that this idea of, of preemption, uh, you know, that America uses its power to change the world, to make the world look like itself. Uh, so, you you know, you, you topple Iraq, you topple Afghanistan, you go to Iran, North Korea, right? You use American power to bring about good. Um, that idea sells, right? And it's so it was very, very persuasive. As I said, to a lot of liberal hawks, right? So it wasn't just conservatives who were on board with this. A lot of people like the idea of the United States being the moral crusader. So, so this works, and it was so powerful. But I can't. I keep coming back to the fact. Now we're twenty years out. Let's look at how you know the effects of this idea of preemption and nation building and all of it. You know, the reality is we haven't pulled those states up. We've dropped down. We are we are more similar to Iraq and Afghanistan and those those rogue regimes in terms of crappy democracy infighting, hatred, all of that, then, then I think we were, then we envisioned when we first started this operation, right? It's, it's, it's really sad how, how idealism can crumble and your hopes of, of vanquishing evil can turn you into that very evil itself. Well, and I think that's a, the point that it's an, it's a, a valuable point in that Iraq was an easy sell, right? It was popular at the time, but the thing you're pointing at, right? Like, uh, neocons and conservatives like who who wanted you know american power and the broadcasting of power and like we've been hit we're going to we're going to take it to them there's a sale there's a sell there and one of the interesting things about the bush 
doctrine or the Bush approach was that it kind of touched on lots of things. Like you said, liberals, right? If if that wasn't your cup of tea that we're going to go out and, you know, kick, you know, kick the ass of people who who don't like the US, then then you can be sold on the idea that we're spreading democracy, right? That we're we're bringing human rights, we're we're bringing a better way of life to people. Like there was something for everyone, right? <laughs> in in that approach and and everybody took not everybody the majority of people took the bait i think that's also part of why it's so uh damaging right when we come back around to people who have lost faith in government it's not that a small subset of america was you know in some way uh bamboozled by this it was like everyone had their expectations whether it was american power is so overwhelming that we can impose our will whether it was, you know, well, either way, we're imposing our will, whether that's, you know, through force and the the ability to conquer our, our enemies or whether it's our ability to improve the world, to bring democracy and human rights to people. And either like we failed miserably at both of those <laughs> things. Right. And so like on it's across the political spectrum that people feel, I think, you know, let down or failed by by government and in, in, in this endeavor in, in Iraq and in, well, in Afghanistan as well, but certainly in Iraq. I, I I know we should we got one more topic to kick to so I, real quickly here I find I think you're right when you say that the Iraq War will become one of those central case studies for years and years and years and we tend to have forgotten it because because of the Trump presidency and all of that and ISIS and Afghanistan but it really was an extraordinary decision right to to say that we're going to attack a country who has not attacked us first um, I, I think about the you know the case studies in U.S. history you know you have Vietnam and and you have the Iraq War now right that those are the two that we need to spend years and years dissecting how did those decisions come about? Why did we do them? How did it lead us so astray? Right? I, I really, I, 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 I teach a class right now called Great Decisions. And one of the cases we look at is Iraq, because I think it's so important, yeah. um, understanding the reality of how the United States responded to the post 9-11 world. Well, I know we're running out of time here. And I know one of the last things we wanted to talk about was this article by uh, Stephen Walt, who uh, he's a prominent realist, very well known writes excellent books and writes for foreign policies kind of all over the place. And he wrote, wrote a piece this week where he, he was asking how 9-11 will be remembered a century from now, right? A cent- or I should say a century later. And he said the attacks could be viewed as a historical turning point or as entirely insignificant. And a lot of that is dependent upon what comes next. So we spent a lot of time assessing, you know, the United States over the last 20 years. And again, that story, not so good, Phil. What do, what do you think as you think about another 80 years from now? Um, how are we going to remember 9-11? Will it be this paradigmatic changing point where U.S. foreign policy shifts maybe the end of the American empire? Or is it just just an awful day um, that we we responded to eventually and we slowly figured it out? What's, what's your sense? Um, you know, this, so Walt's argument is really, you know, interesting. He presents a series of scenarios, one scenario in which, you know, China rises to be the sort of global hegemon and American power continues to fade. Um, another in which the U S kind of sets the, you know, it gets on the right track and sort of reemerges as a, as a global power. Um, I, I, I don't, it's a good question. Like, I mean, I, I think the, the most interesting aspect of, of Walt's argument is that, I mean, what he basically is saying is that all of this stuff that we've spent the last hour talking about, the last 20 years of foreign policy, in some ways, he essentially is arguing it doesn't matter. <laughs> and it, I, don't, I don't think he means it like, you know, obviously it matters, right? We're talking about, you know, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives of other people. You know, this is really significant stuff. But I think in terms of U.S. foreign policy, his argument is essentially that what we do next 
will determine how this is remembered. And, and if we continue down the road we're on and we have this divided politics and the American experiment sort of, you know, unravels, then 9-11 will be remembered as this massively significant, you know, kind of turning point. Um, if, you know, if other things, you know, moving forward, other events occur, American, you know, whatever, through through a variety of different means, America reestablishes its its leadership or, you know, whether that's individually or with, with allies, then then maybe it's, you know, this this kind of the last 20 years are this sort of uh outlier as opposed to the to the new norm i the fascinating part is playing with what comes next like i'm Mm -hmm. i as much as i would like to be optimistic about it right now when you look around at american politics it it feels like it's hard to write this ship i i don't think we're not going to be able to write the ship but the idea that we're able to sort of pull this back together in in a way that maintains american power and legitimacy internationally at the level that it was pre-September 11th. That's hard for me to imagine right now. I can see other scenarios. It doesn't mean that China emerges. You know, maybe it's some other coalition. I I, I don't know, but it's kind of hard to imagine right now. I, the, the wild card, I think, is the one that he, I think, even calls it the wild card, which is that we're not going to care in 100 years because the environment and all these other issues are going to be so massive. Different. I think yeah. that's probably actually that if I had to bet, if I had to place money on one, that's the one I'm placing money on, that this one feels really significant. But in the light, in light of the challenges that are coming to the world over the next 100 years, this is going to seem pretty minor. What, what do you think? No, I think. Yeah, I, I I can't I can't get away from the importance of the environment as the defining factor. I, I I think what I found most interesting was his you know Walt for a long time has been writing about the role of domestic politics and that you know the only thing that can screw up the American empire and American hege- hegemony is its domestic politics and I think that's what we're seeing today and that's what we've seen over the last twenty years that the United States can't get out of its own way um, that that it takes fear and turns it upon itself. So my sense is that I I think I think. Some September 11th is going to be a historic day. Um, and my fear is that it's going to be the beginning of the end of the American empire, right? That it was, that people will look back and say, missed opportunities. Um, and, and China is certainly seizing upon these opportunities. Now, moving forward, China's job gets harder. Uh, the United States job is going to stay about the same. So I, I, there still is the possibility of the United States remaining the hegemon. And Walt even proposes a situation where, where China passes the United States. And then there's some models showing the United States economy growing after that, right? So there, there could be this either bipolar or you could see one reemerging. So, um, but no matter what, I, I do think that 9-11 will be historic in terms of remembering the potential end of the American empire, how the United States sullied itself. Now, I hope that it, it, causes a course correction. But I think if we're if we're going to be social scientists and we look at the world around us right now, the ability to correct and move in a, in a better direction, you know, I'm sorry, Joe Biden, it's not happening, right? It's still really, really ugly. And it's going to take some years before the United States really comes to term terms with the legacy of 9-11. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic both for the end of the American empire and this tidal wave of climate change that's just going to smack us. That's that's really fascinating. I mean, I think I think you're right. Uh, you know, the 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 blow that it was to American credibility, both at home, right, which we've talked about how people sort of lose faith in government and whatever. But again, abroad as well, the blow to American credibility abroad. Yeah, I mean, I and, and that's really remarkable. Like, again, you know, you and I were literally in class together on September 11th. If, if you could like if we could get in a time machine and go back and, and like when you think about you know, if you could go back and tell people in, you know, 20 years ago, uh, you know, in the lead up to the Afghanistan, even at the early days of the Afghanistan war, 
um, that 9-11 was not. I mean, at that time, it was this, you know, massive unifying, you know, globally, domestically, like America, this is, you know, the chance for America to assert its global leadership and show, like we talked about, that that this is, you know, to be this beacon for the rest of the world. To go back and 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 to sort of break the news to uh, us, right, that in fact, it was this turning point that was, you know, possibly the exact opposite, right? In which everything was was potentially squandered. That's that's really remarkable. Twenty years, like a lot, a lot can change in twenty years, right? And and again, history isn't destiny, right? We could see things change over the future, and I, I think, I, I mean, I am. I'm not optimistic in that sense, but I'm excited to see like what happens next, what happens moving forward. And all those things are, you know, I, I want to see this history play out to see whether the United States can find a better path. And I hope so, right? I'm, I'm rooting for the United States because I think we're a valuable uh, player in the international system. We just feel we got to be better. We got to be better. It's back to we're a valuable player in the international system because of those values, right? And and it, yeah. if if you if you push the values aside for other things, then then the value uh, the the American leadership is it's you know it, it plays less of an important role. Yeah. That, well, that's a good place to wrap up, uh, Phil. Quick reminder of how uh, they can stay connected with us. Yeah. So go to if I mean if if you're interested in the, the article in the Washington Post that we we cited kind of throughout is really interesting it's long but it's not crazy long it's worth a read um the the stephen walt article i've, I've put on the web page um the, there's a again a frontline piece that talks about uh the the line from september 11th through january 6th as well that's that's linked on the web page so go to the politicslab.com you can find quick links to all of those things and then uh, again on on facebook at the politics lab and on twitter at politics lab pod it may not be always be nice, Phil, but we live in extraordinary times. We do. We do. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll see you next week. Talk to you later, Bill. Bye-bye.